0: Welcome to St. Paul's Lutheran Church, to our Bible study here in the gym. My name is Lawton Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be leading our discussion this morning. We're going to be diving further into the book of Hebrews, starting at chapter 4. But before we get started with that, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have... You have inspired the hands of men uh, to write your words down on the page, and we are thankful today for your living and active word, for, for its inerrancy, for the truth that it proclaims into our lives about your love for us and your plan of salvation. Uh, we ask that, that you would move among us this morning as we discuss uh, the pages of, of this book of Hebrews, Lord, and that you would work in our hearts and minds as we grow in faith toward you and in love toward one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, So we've we're only a few weeks into the book of Hebrews, and so chapter four last week. You guys were in chapter three, uh, and there was a lot of conversation about rest, right? This this talk of rest, and so we're kind of dive further into that today. it's interesting, we're going to find some, some interesting uh, separations in the text here. I'm not always a fan of chapter and verse divisions. It's good for organization, but sometimes it messes with my brain as I'm reading through the text. Uh, but, but let's start here at 4 verse 1, and we'll just kind of walk through this together. And I look forward to your, your comments and questions. I have a microphone for each and every one of you as you have those questions. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All right. There's there's a couple of things going on here. Um, This letter is is written in a time of turmoil, a time of upheaval. There's a lot of that going on with these epistles in the New Testament. Uh, And so there's struggles for these early Christians. And there's this conversation of entering rest um, and failing to reach rest. And so this is hearkening back um, to an earlier time in Israel's history, really to the wilderness wanderings, to entering into the promised land. Um, and they don't trust God. You guys remember all the way back uh, a few weeks ago in the Living Way Bible study, we talked about Caleb. Uh, and, and I said one of the authors titled it Caleb the Brave or Caleb the Courageous. And I said, I really think it's Caleb the Trusting. Uh, Because as those 12 spies went into the promised land and they saw the giants that lived there, they saw the amazing land that it was, the fertile land. They brought back those huge bunches of grapes. They talked about it flowing with milk and honey. 10 of the 12 were like, yep, it's great. But the thing is, there's these giants there. We can't take them. Uh, And the truth is, yes, you're right. They can't take them. But when God says, I am going to give this land to you, well, guess what's going to happen? He's going to give the land to you. And it was only Caleb and Joshua that, that said, no, 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 no. God's got this. Um, and so this is what that harkens back to. So as, as, an, as a, a Jewish person in the first century hearing this, you are going to hear that story. You're going to be reminded that they stood there right on the boundary of the promised land, didn't trust that God was going to take care of them. And so he said, all right, you got to go to timeout for a while and wander the wilderness and sent them back out into the wilderness. They didn't enter the rest that was promised in the promised land. And so that's what, we're, that's what we hear is, as we read this today. We should have that in mind, this idea of those Jewish people thinking back to their forebears who didn't trust in God. And it talks about that good news coming to us just as it came to them. And and to them, they had seen God's deliverance. I mean, that's what always shocks me about that, that episode where the spies go into the promised land, is that these Israelites had seen those plagues in Egypt. These Israelites had seen the Red Sea parted. They'd seen it swallow the entire Egyptian army. And yet they stood on the edge of the promised land, which God said, I've got this for you. I'm going to deliver it to you. And they said, no, we can't take these giants. Um, and that same promise of life, of deliverance had come, because this right here, it's after the cross. This is after the resurrection. So these early Christians, they're still in that first generation after Jesus the witnesses are still alive to what had happened and so they have seen this they have seen God's rest come and so we hear these words of united in faith with those who listened now in english when we hear the word listen we hear like something that we say to our kids like why aren't you listening to me and it's something very transactional, but in in Hebrew, now this is written in Greek, but for that Hebrew here, there's not really that same word. So when we hear listen, this is, has a connotation of to believe, right? So that's why when we hear the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, um, like this is about believing that word of God that has come to them. Uh, and so is what we're getting at here in rest is trusting the promise of god hearing that word of god and believing right there verse three for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest all of his works were finished from the foundation of the world Um, So this is, uh, as we talk about this, they shall not enter my rest, there is a a part of the Sabbath liturgy in Judaism where they recite, I think it's Psalm 98, I think it's Psalm 98, and then they go back to Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, talking about this idea of rest. Uh, And that psalm, that psalm talks about trusting in God, and then how that lack of trusting in God excludes you from entering his rest. Um, Not about something you do, not about a task you accomplish, about trusting in his word. For he has somewhere, this is verse four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. There's that seventh day language that 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 day on which God has completed the work to be done and rests and creates that day of rest for us um I'm going to say that word a lot partially because as you're one of your pastors I need to hear that this idea of resting in God's goodness his mercy and trusting in his word um but I always think it's fascinating when we talk about this seventh day and this rest that God has created for us. That he's done the work that mankind is created and the first day that they are there is a day of rest. A day of rest. Since therefore, this is verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. So, this right here is, is kind of an interesting section in this. Don't harden your hearts. What's happening is they're, they're facing opposition. There's, there's rough things going on around them. And there's this desire to go back to the sacrificial system on some. For some of the, the, this new Christian community. They're trying to figure out kind of what it means to be a Christian. Remember, like we have this wonderful blessing of God's word and two millennia of theologians and scholars writing and processing, and so we get to read and study a lot of really neat things and some strange stuff too, but a lot of really neat things, right? They're still figuring this out. Jesus has turned everything on its head. Everything they thought they knew has been overturned. And so they're still trying to sort it out, and they're facing opposition, they're facing persecution. This is kind of in the neighborhood of that time of the burning of Rome, the temple of Jerusalem getting destroyed is somewhere around here. And they're trying to figure it out, and a part of that figuring it out is, what do I do? And that is dangerous for these Christians and for us today. Because the what do I do question puts me into that equation for salvation. Instead of Christ being sufficient, instead of him and his work being solely sufficient for my salvation, it becomes Jesus plus a little bit of me. What can I do to be a part of this? And that's, that's where this is getting at here. Hardening your hearts to God's word, right? God's word comes to us and says, you are a poor, miserable sinner. On your own, you are out of luck. But praise be to God for Christ Jesus who came and did it all for you. You have been made whole, made complete, promised salvation in him. Don't think that you have a part in this. I know you really want one. I know you really want to be a part of this, that you you want to say, this is what I've done to be a part of it. But don't. Because with that, It breeds insecurity in us as Christians. There's no metric, right? We can't quantify that. If I break out the scales of justice and say, did I do enough good stuff this week to outweigh the bad stuff? I mean, how do I actually quantify that? I can't. And so there's this uncertainty, this this despair that comes with that, that we don't get from trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. And, And that is kind of where this comes from, this idea of hardening hearts. Verse 8. I promise I'm going to take questions in just a minute. And you guys should have some questions probably. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is pointing back to Joshua, that conquest of Canaan, to them standing on the edge of it at first and not trusting and being able to enter in. And so there's still this Sabbath rest for the people of God, this place where we're gathering right now, Um, And then this place that we look forward to in the future also, this Sabbath rest. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's important. That verse right there, as we read it, It speaks to so many parts of who we are as a body of believers here at St. Paul's and as the Christian church at large. Um, We want to enter that rest. There is a striving to trust that Christ is sufficient because there is a constant, constant tug in our hearts to replace God here with anything else that says, I've got a part to play in this. or whatever other idol needs has this need to eat its way into that central part of our being, right? We have to go to the Word of God and say, Christ is sufficient, time and time again. I'm just going to repeat that to you guys today. The second half of that, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, There's days in our lives where we can go to the scriptures and we can just feel them wash over us and we say, yep, God's got me. This is good. And then there's days, because of the circumstances of life, where we can't even find the focus to make it through a verse. Where we say, God, where are you? I am pretty upset today. So-and-so did this. This happened at work. My you know, my spouse is being a jerk, my kids aren't listening to me, and I can't rest confidently in the promises of God on my own. I don't know if anybody else is like that, if you've had days like that. I might have had one even in the past week where I'm like, I need somebody else to tell me that Jesus loves me (laughs) because in this moment, I'm not sure, right? That is a very real struggle for us as Christians in this world. And this right here points to a community, to a body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that can speak those words of promise to the other when they can't speak them even from God's word to themselves. We are not an island. This This is not just about me and Jesus. This is about us walking side by side in faith with our eyes fixed on him. And in those days when it's really hard and our Heads are pointed down at our toes because life is just heavy. A brother or sister in Christ can come alongside of us and point us to those promises of God. Remind us of who He is and what He's done for us. That verse 11 right there um, is so powerful to point us to what one of our privileges is as a follower of Christ. To get to say, I know life's hard, but God's got you. Don't worry. I know that you can't keep this up. You never could anyways. It's just right now you're really aware of it. He's got you. And so there's a big community statement there. Got a question in the back. you get me close to the camera here. I don't know if I like this. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, regarding verse 11 and acknowledging what you just said is a common experience that it is uh, very tempting the word strive sounds like work and we just talked about rest (laughs) but I I made a note from another bible study that the greek meaning actually means to be eager be Mm -hmm. eager to enter that rest yeah so if we talk about disobedience it's simply a lack of faith is what it is yeah it's I, I would I would phrase it a lack of trust right yeah it's not when we hear that's a good point. When we hear that word strive, we hear strive as I need to work towards something. Um, and in a sense, there is a working towards something, but that working is a working towards continued trust in what God's Word has said and what Christ has done. And so we don't need to look at that and say like, there's things I need to do. What it is, if there's anything to do, it's to let go of the desire to be in control. Let go of the desire to drive the bus and realize that God is not your co-pilot. He's your pilot, and you're in the passenger seat. You're not even navigating. You're just there. And thanks be to God for that, because I would get horribly lost. Good, thank you for bringing that up. All right, yeah. But, hang on, the microphone is warming up. We're ready. I'm still a little confused from back at verses 3 and 4 because he he talks about those who believe have entered the rest. Then he says, they shall not enter my rest. And then he talks about God having completed creation. I just don't get the relationship there. Yeah, so this is... So the best I can do to explain that is this is really hearkening back, and it wasn't Psalm 98; it's Psalm 95 that's in that in that Hebrew liturgy. This is hearkening back to that psalm, that that statement right there. Um, because if I can go there, I can read you that psalm real quick, if it's going to let me go there. All right. So this is this is kind of the Sabbath day liturgy. So like that sunset on Friday when the Sabbath is beginning, this is a part of it. Uh, and it reads this, "O come let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Sounds familiar, right? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So directly there, I mean, he's, directly what he's talking about is the people that were doubting God's goodness back in, right here, back in the wilderness wanderings, back on the edge of the promised land. He's making a comparison here uh, because there was two of them that trusted in God um, and then there were those that didn't. And so that psalm points towards trust in God, don't be like those guys. <laughs> right? It's, I mean, it's a clear example. The, the people that were listening to this, that's what they would hear and say, okay, God is good. He's done all these good things. Don't be like those that failed to trust him. Right? And then it talks about that work, the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He completed work, and a part of that work that he completed was rest for us to enter into. And so there's this constant struggle that even those Israelites that had seen physically, firsthand with their own eyes, what he had done, were struggling to trust in his word. That, that idea of entering rest here in this chapter really is about trusting his word and actually when we kind of summarize these first 13 verses of chapter 4 we're going to see that um, but that's really what he's driving at there is this idea of trusting that entering rest is trusting in the word of God does that answer your question bud all right let's see where where was that was down here at verse 12 all right So uh, when I was listening to some commentators this week on these next couple of verses, uh, they pointed out that if you were to read just verses 12 and 13 apart from the general context of the rest of this, it might be a little disconcerting Um, and might not land very well, uh, which is why context is so important when we read God's Word. But we're going to read it in context. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's some heavy law right there, right? Just a little bit. Um, yeah, the... The word of God, this, this idea of God's word of law coming to the people saying, you are not enough, is a pretty big deal. It's living and active. It is alive and it makes alive too. The law kills, the gospel makes alive. It's active. It's actually doing something. I mean, that's one of... One of the most amazing things about God's word is, at the beginning, He spoke, and stuff came into being, where there was no longer anything else. If I ever get to, to talk to you guys about creation, one of the most amazing things I think—and um, I'm not a full-fledged Hebrew scholar—I just like Hebrew a lot. But the word bara in Hebrew is to create, and when you look throughout, uh, when you look throughout the Old Testament, that word is only. It only occurs 48 times in the entire Old Testament, and each and every time it refers either to God creating something or alluding to his creative, uh, yeah. Oh, we will leave it off. (laughs) Man. (laughs) All right. Well, they're, they're getting a little bit of this too then. They're getting our questions, but not the answers. So we should go over there. (laughs) Let's just march in. Uh, Where was I at? Living and active, doing things. Oh, Barah. That's where I was at. All right. 48 times in the Old Testament, every time it's to God doing something. So I always always talk to people, uh, like my dad is an artist. He loves to paint. Paints beautiful watercolors. Um, I'm slacking because i have some paintings of his to hang in my office and i haven't done it yet but i've only been here for like a year and a half so i've got time right um but i always joke that we don't like we like to say oh i created this piece of art i say i don't know if we created it or if we made it because to make something you can be creative and make something from something else but only god in the old testament is described as creating from nothing Spoken, there was. It's pretty amazing. When we speak the words of institution and we say, This is, Christ promises to be present in that. His word is doing something there, it's active in that place. As that little baby, those, those four that were baptized here last weekend, as that water was poured over their head and the word of God was spoken spoken, it did something. I always used to, to tell the elementary school students, I would gather them around the, the font, and I would say, if you could only put on Holy Spirit glasses, they didn't invent them. They won't ever be able to. But if you could, and you could see what God was actually doing in this place as he came down and dwelt in the heart of that little one in that place, you'd see how God's word is living and active in his people as he works in and through us. And so it's a beautiful thing because it speaks those words of life. Uh, But sometimes those words of life can be painful to us as sinners, and we get to that here in these next words. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow. This is not some big medieval broadsword that takes broad strokes uh, and just... With wanton abandon, just takes life. This is a surgical scalpel. As God steps into our lives, and He goes right down to the deep part soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, that life giving part, discerning the intentions of the heart. You know, we have, we have a variety of doctors in our congregation and surgeons, and I actually had a great conversation with one of them on Friday night about about the things that he gets to do in the operating room. And it was amazing. Uh, because our surgeons are, are incredibly skilled with what they can do. Um, but they fix the problems they can see with their eyes. They can, they can catheterize a vein. They can catheterize things. They can suture. They can mend bones. But they can't see what's in the heart. And that's what this is getting at is is God's scalpel is so precise that it's going right down to the heart of the problem to cut out those things that need not be there. And it's not the melanoma on the skin. It's those idols of the heart, that, that sin that is there, that's deep-seated. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Um... You know, it makes me think a little bit, this naked, exposed, makes me think of Adam and Eve as they've eaten the fruit, and they're like, oh no, we're naked, and they go hide. And it's like God sees everything. No matter where you hide, he is going to find you. Um, He's the creator of all things. And so he sees all of those things, all of those things in our heart. But he sees those things through the eyes of the cross, and so those things don't make us unpalatable to him, don't make us unlovable to him. Uh, if I need it, I'll let you know, Johnny. Thank you for being heads up. Um, instead, he sees us as his forgiven children, deeply loved. Uh, and so before if there's any questions, I just want to like summarize what this first 13 verses kind of. There's some big picture stuff here. Um, one of, one of the things that this gives us a picture of in these verses is where we are as a church, right? This is kind of an eschatological an end times perspective of we're, we're in the, we're in the now, not yet. Um, Christ has come, salvation is complete. We exist in this place knowing that Jesus won, yet still struggling with sin. Um, trusting in his promises, saying your promise is good and one day you are going to call me into your near presence, and it's going to be excellent. While at the same time, wrestling with the effects of sin in this world. that's one of the big things that as we talk about this rest here in these pictures of that seventh day that we, that we hear. Another thing that we find here is what exactly is it? Like, where is it that we enter rest? Uh, And and rest has come to mean a lot of different things over time. Um, I've heard Sabbath day be talked about in ways of like, I am just gonna eat popcorn and binge watch my favorite show. There's all kinds of things out there. But the rest that God's talking about is as we come together as a body of believers into worship. That's the rest. That's where we come together and find that rest. And how do we find that rest? It's as we sit here together in the chairs in gym or in the pews in the church and we hear the word of God read and proclaimed to us. As he comes to us in his word and sacraments, as we rest here from the exhaustion of living in a sin-sick and dying world and we are fed, that is true rest that's that third part yeah where do we find it we find it here and how do we find it it is being fed because on those weeks where you don't hear the word of God during the week from other people and you come here and you finally hear that beautiful promise of the gospel spoke and you go yeah God's got me Well, Johnny can you bring me a microphone awesome I'm gonna grab the microphone so our, our friends on the radio can hear and we'll just, there we go. Good to go. <laughs> Does this passage also speak about the power of the word, that it is a living, the phrase keeps coming up here and in Second Peter, the living word, that we question it and we don't, If we don't feel that we understand it, we may doubt it, but I don't have to understand it, I have to believe it. Ah, the idea of, of hearing the word and understanding it. Um, that's a great point. We don't actually, we don't understand all the things of God, right? And, and if we feel like we have to understand all those things of God in order to be in, order to be in his good graces, you're right. We are missing the point. We don't, like, like you said, we don't have to understand all the things. We should study his word. We should strive to understand what we can. But we also have to be okay with those places where God has remained hidden from us. Yes. Yeah, we can't, we can't ask him to prove. That idea of give us a sign, right? We, we hear that time and time again in the gospel accounts. We'll just, you know, give us a sign, and then we'll believe. No, you won't. <laughs> That's not what it's about. You're right. Um, and I think I've said it in here before, but I'll say it again. I love that theme in the gospel of John, how the disciples that are walking right next to Jesus just don't get it. I can hear what you're saying, Jesus. I don't understand. All the way until God reveals it to them. And this is post-resurrection. So they spend all that time with him, walking and talking and seeing the miracles. And he's saying, yep, I'm, you know, the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and suffer many things. And yet they're like, yeah, but that's not how it goes, Jesus. <laughs> yes, it is. God's God's revelation of himself to us is exactly what we need for the time, and we have to trust it in those places where we say, I don't get it. That he's still living and active and working on our behalf. It's kind of like in the Lord's Supper. We trust in the words that he said, This is my body. I have no earthly idea how that actually happens from an earthly perspective other than the word of God is living and active and he said that's what it is and so I trust that because he said it that's what it is and I have to say to the one that wants the empirical explanation I'm really sorry we take it on faith we trust in that word of God very good excellent how are we doing on time oh we're doing great on time very good. Anything else out there before I head on to chapter 5? Here we go. Coming your way. Pardon me. It's on. I, I understand the Sabbath rest, seventh day, and so forth. We live in the eighth day. Right. And our font is eight sided and so forth like that. So how does, how does that get together? Yeah, we, we're baptized in the eighth day, right? That's why that font has eight sides. And so we are. We are a people that, living in that reality, we still live here. But our actual eternal reality is that eighth day, and so we're already, we are already redeemed. We are already made whole by Him, and so there is, there is this this sense of Have you guys ever heard that baptized into the eighth day? Anybody? Yeah. All right. Good. A couple of you guys. Excellent. Yeah. We're. Because that's what we're looking for to, that eighth day, that return of Jesus, when all things will be made new, when the pain, the suffering of sin and death in this world is gone. And so we do live in that. We, we live with that reality to come, but we also live with that reality here, which is a weird, how does that work, the now, not yet of the eighth day. Does that get what you're talking about? Yeah which is a beautiful thing, um, but also something that we struggle with because we say, cool, I'm baptized into the eighth day. I I I have a sure and certain spot by trusting that Jesus is who he said he is and he's done what he said he did. But then I go out here, somebody cuts me off in traffic and I say a bad word. Yet I'm still loved by God and I come back and I say, Forgive me, Lord, I am a poor, miserable sinner. <laughs> and so there is a struggle there. And that's why, that is what connects us back to this body of believers of needing to be here and hear those words, gather together and worship. Um, I love technology. I love that we can share this with people online, that we can share this over the radio, but there is no replacement for person-to-person interaction. I think we learned that really well in 2020. Uh, that, that grabbing a cup of coffee with somebody and talking about life or gathering together and singing hymns, there's no way we can replace that electronically. Um, it's a beautiful gift to be able to proclaim God's word at a distance beyond these walls. Um, but we need to gather together. Sidebar. And it's mostly because I just want to see your faces. Like, that's one of those things. It gets really lonely here if this gym is empty. It never is, but it would get really lonely. All right, anything else? Oh, there we go. All right, I'm going to go behind the camera. You guys are going to get super close up on YouTube. <laughs> get my steps in this morning. There you go. I wonder if there was any connection to Matthew 11:28 with this section about Jesus that I will give you rest. So coming to Jesus, yeah, so, so him giving us rest, how is it that Jesus gives us rest? Right, so the, the, the citation was Matthew 11 where he says, come, come to me and I'll give you those who are weak and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a connection here because Jesus giving you rest is him giving you himself um, as that perfect sacrifice as the lamb uh, that was slain so that our sins could be covered by his blood. And so, so there is a connection there. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Come to me, believe my words, and you will have rest. Right? That rest doesn't mean life will be easy, but that rest means that your future is secure. We don't want to confuse those things. Sometimes we confuse that saying like, oh man, I believe in Jesus. He's going to give me rest. Life is going to be good. I better play the lottery. But that's not what it's about. Future is secure. I love the, the illustration. If you've ever seen uh, a, a pastor do the, the, the sermon illustration with a rope, where you've got one little segment on the rope that's like the width of a piece of electrical tape, it talks about that being your life and then there's like you know well we can't really do an infinite amount of rope on the other end but like there's a lot of rope over here and sometimes we look at that little piece of electrical tape like it's all there is and so the suffering the the frustrations of the day right when we let those frustrations of the day overtake us and we we act like they're that big part of the rope when in actuality it's even a smidge of that piece of electrical tape. And we have all of eternity to look forward to in the presence of God. And when we have that perspective, that eternal perspective, when we come to Jesus and he gives us rest and we rest in that, then some of those things today, the not, we're not always going to respond well. But when we get reminded of those things, we can rest a little easier knowing that This is a moment. This is passing. But what's to come is forever. And so that's, I mean, there's a big eschatological piece here. And thank you for that, right? The Matthew 11 piece as we, as Jesus is calling us and saying, I will give you rest. And a hush fell over the crowd. All right. So we're going to close out... um, This chapter right here, uh, and this is one of those spots where I read it, and I'm like, so could we have not moved the chapter division up just a couple verses? I feel like maybe that would have been in my mind, but, you know, I'm not as great a scholar as they were in the 1600s, so, you know, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, in, in the Jewish sacrificial system, there was a high priest. He was the one that was, that was there as a part of that offering sacrifices for the people. Um, and that was a requirement. Before Jesus came, there was this whole sacrificial system that was set up that you, I mean, you knew exactly what animals you needed to bring. You knew what day of the year you needed to go and bring things to the temple, and it talks here about Jesus being our high priest, the son of God. Um, and one, one that is able to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. All those high priests before, every, every high priest that had ever come along since that sacrificial system had been instituted, was a poor, miserable sinner, just like the people that were bringing sacrifices to him. And I think that, I mean, that right there speaks wonders to who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He was tempted. If you remember Luke 4, he goes out in the wilderness and Satan waits. Oh, you're really hungry. Turn these stones to bread. He tempts him, tempts him, tempts him. He doesn't fall into sin. He goes all the way to the cross, even praying in Gethsemane, "Father, take this cup away from me. Dad, I really don't want to get nailed to a cross. This doesn't sound like the thing that like, is going to be awesome." And yet he goes to the cross, willingly. He humbled himself, was tempted, he suffered. He walked our dirty streets. He was spit on. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He knows what suffering is, and he did that on our behalf, and now he is our high priest. He is that one that intercedes for us before God, and so the author of of this text right here pointing us, hold fast to that confession, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did. He is your high priest, not one that's sinful just like you, but one that is without sin, one that is perfect, and he has done all that's needed to be done to atone for your sins. And that's where that throne of grace comes in. That might not, that, for, for us, that might not land the same as it did for a first century Jewish person. Because the throne of grace is the place on the day of atonement where the sacrifice for atonement would be offered. And so, atonement is accomplished. Christ has done that. We can approach that throne of grace receiving the mercy and find grace in time of need. And help in time of need. Because it is accomplished. It is finished. The atonement is there. So after that little bit of law we had right there, at that sword, you know, that scalpel coming in and carving those parts out of our, our, our hearts, we get this beautiful, beautiful gospel proclamation of hold fast to that confession. Trust in the word of God. Uh, and before I move on, I want to read you guys a little quote out of the large catechism here. Actually, two quotes. I got a little carried away. But this really pertains to what we're talking about here in chapter 4. The first of which, this is, this is all, all to do with the first commandment. Because really, what we're talking about here is a first commandment issue. Um, big time. So the first quote is, this is Luther writes, the intention of this commandment therefore is to require true faith and confidence of the heart which flies straight to the one true God and cling to him alone. And then this other one, if you haven't read the large catechism, it's great. There's a new edition out, annotated. It's awesome. You should read it. There's one on my desk. You can come sit in my office. We'll drink coffee and talk about it. Here's a second quote, and then I'll be done with quotes, except for chapter 5 of Hebrews. Thus, you can easily understand what and how much this commandment requires, namely, that one's whole heart and confidence be placed in God alone and in no one else. To have a God, as you can well imagine, does not mean to grasp him with your fingers or put him into a purse or shut him up into a box. Rather, you lay hold of God when your heart grasps him and clings to him. To cling to him with your heart is nothing else than to entrust yourself to him completely. He wishes you, he wishes to turn us away from everything else apart from him and to draw us to himself because he is the one eternal good. It is as if he said, what you formerly sought from the saints or or what you hope to receive from mammon or from anything else, turn to me for all of this. Look on me as the one who will help you and lavish all good things upon you richly. That's our high priest. That's the one that intercedes before us, before God, for us. The one that tells us, I've got you. Trust in my word. All right. I think we can dive into chapter 5. Here we go. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. There's that sinful high priest statement. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one So there's a lot going on there. Some of that we've already talked about. Um, but there's a couple things in there that can kind of make us furrow our brows as we read these, these, these verses. Um, obviously, God the Father sent God the Son down here. We, we're familiar with this phrase, begotten. We speak it in the creeds. I'm not going to speak about Melchizedek because in just a couple chapters, you're going to get a whole lot on Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek, so we're going to just put a pin in that for a few weeks from now. Um, You can read ahead if you're really curious. But there's a couple things here in our remaining minutes I just wanted to touch on. Uh, He learned obedience through what he suffered. Did anybody hear that and say, huh, he learned obedience? I thought he was God. God. No, I was the only one. Man. well, I was reading, and there was a commentator that that actually was speaking about this and, and said, learning obedience here is referring to knowing and experiencing something being different. Knowing about suffering is different from experiencing suffering. Knowing how to change a tire is different from actually changing a tire. Knowing... How to put a diaper on a newborn is different from actually wrestling with a newborn to put a diaper on a newborn. Um, And so it points to this. It's not that he didn't know what obedience was, but he lived it. And so instead of just knowing it, he experienced it. And so this obedience is something known and experienced. Are you tracking with me? Hang on one second. On the way. That was loud. Well I was just going to ask wasn't I mean isn't that really the point of the gospel? It's not just knowing but we had to experience what we did in Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it's not just it's not him learning it's it's something that was a part of the process knowing and experiencing it. Um, and that's something that is also true in our lives as Christians. We we know that suffering should come, and we also experience that in a variety of ways as we follow Jesus. Um, Thanks be to God that here in America, like we don't have the same persecution that they've had across time and space in other parts of the church. But in different ways, each of us gets tempted by Satan, endures struggles uh, for the faith as we walk in faith. This next one in verse 9, right here, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. That one sounds a little strange at first when you read it. Because you think, well, Jesus was perfect, so how is he made perfect? Well, the language here is actually pointing to the completion of his salvific work, that salvation activity on our behalf. He was always perfect, but then he perfectly completed that work of salvation. It's not just, it's not just that, that he is perfect in of himself. It's that he carried that task out that was appointed to him in perfection. And because he was able to do that, because he was without sin and went to the cross and shed his blood and rose again on the third day, our salvation is secure. That is what that right there is talking about. Um, And and again, when we hear this word obedience here, later on in verse 9, obey him. Again, we hear that, a lot of us, like parents and kids, you know, obey me, I am your father. And it's very work-oriented. Obedience to God, obedience to Christ as he has come here, is believing in him. I've said that a lot today, but I think we need to hear that so many times over and over again so that we don't insert ourselves into the equation. And we, I mean, we should be telling other people about Jesus. There is the third use of the law, right? Where we go out and we get to tell people about Jesus, but that's not us pursuing salvation. That's our response to salvation. That's us saying, you're never going to guess these awesome things that Jesus did for me. Let me tell you about it. The obedience here is believing. I'm going to say that like a broken record so you guys trust in that, so that you rest confidently, so that when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, you hear Jesus is the Son of God who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that I could have eternity in the presence of God That's what that's about. This is not an obedience of you doing all the right things and checking all the right boxes. It's trusting. All the cool things that you get to do for God out of that, that the Holy Spirit works in your heart as a branch connected to the vine is fueled by the Spirit at work in you because you are grafted in, not because you're seeking to be grafted in, trust in that and then go tell your friends about it because they should know about it too but that's the third use of the law that that guide that sends you out into the world because of your salvation not because you're like well if I tally up enough cool stuff then Jesus will love me enough and I'll get a premium spot in that mansion in the sky all the rooms are going to be really good all right, you guys, any, we have three minutes. Any questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts? Seeing nothing. It's been a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. It's good to see all your faces gathered here together, live and in person. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Blessings on your week. God bless you guys.